Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. It was a super busy week in tennis, and I kind of forgot what that was like. Going from Indian Wells, Miami, Monte Carlo, uh, you could forget that sometimes there's like three tournaments going on at once that you are having to juggle around. And that was this week. Very, very packed. And for me, I was so busy over the weekend that I really couldn't watch much, and that's why this is dropping later than I like to drop it. Most of you will be listening or watching on a Tuesday. But for me, it's still Monday, everybody. Uh, but yeah, I had to catch up on everything. And that is what took so long. Uh, I'm going to talk about Djokovic. I'm going to talk a little Dusan Lajevic, who beat Andre Rublev and won in Banja Luka. I am going to talk about Barcelona, the final Alcaraz over Tsitsipas in straight sets. I will talk about uh, Munich, Holger Runa over Botic van de Zanschkop in three. I have my power rankings. I have all my notes. I, If I want to do them, I will, but I think I'm going to save it. Let's see how we're doing on time, and I'll make the decision live. All right? Let's start with Novak, because... In the grand scheme of things, you know, what's most consequential for tennis history and Roland Garros uh, coming up, obviously, it is Novak Djokovic's status uh, coming out of this week, where he lost to Dusan Lajevic after beating Luka Van Asch in the first round. And my first thought was, well, you know, his level is still tracking pretty much the same as what it did last year and what it did the year before. Last year in Belgrade, could have, arguably should have lost to Laszlo Gera in the first round. Gera, uh, that match I think was three tie breaks. And uh, even if I have that slightly wrong, uh, I do remember that Gera had many break leads in, in many tie breaks. I mean, he won the first set. He had chances in the second. He had chances in the third. He played a very choky match. Uh, then Novak dropped a set to Ketsmanovic, dropped a set to Hachinov had nothing left, uh, was pretty much exhausted in the third set against Rublev in the final there, and he lost at six love. So yeah, there's a difference. You know, Novak made the final last year in Belgrade, uh, whereas here he loses his second match. But, you know, he should have lost, and he could have lost uh, those other matches. His his form wasn't that good. And then if you go back a year before, he lost to Aslan Karatsev in Belgrade, third round. Yeah, Karatsev was dangerous at this time, no doubt about it. But the point is, early loss Monte Carlo, early loss the following week, that's kind of what it's been. That's nothing new. And two years ago, 
Djokovic beats Nadal in Paris and wins Roland Garros. Last year, he wins Rome and comes into RG looking to be in great shape. Doesn't go as well against Rafa. The Madrid withdrawal kind of changes a lot of that. Changes the calculus for me. It raises some questions. And I'm not sure it's the elbow. Because, first of all, he took the compression sleeve off. But much more importantly, the serve velocity, the weight of shot on the forehand, the latter not being as good as really it should be, but much better than it was in the Lorenzo Musetti match. I'm not 100% convinced that this is about the elbow issue. Now, if I had to make a guess, it's the best guess you can make. But the point is, I'm simply not sure. Plus in press, you know, he had mostly positive things to say about the way the elbow was healing and progressing. And he didn't say anything about it after the Lajevic match. So sometimes you have to be willing to say, I don't know. And in this case, I don't know why Novak has withdrawn from Madrid. Not sure. But it raises some questions. I still have the same feeling that I've had all year, which is just a little bit of disappointment about how things have played out from a storyline standpoint, because I want to have the conversation of who is the best tennis player in the world in 2023. I want to have that conversation, and we really can't. I tweeted this. I tried to tweet this out. It was a total disaster. Total disaster. Uh, I, I hate Twitter, but I'm sure it'll go over much better on YouTube. Much, much, much better. My point is, we continue to miss data points. We continue to lack... Uh, a full data set just that would give us the ability to engage in this discussion and to kind of get some, maybe not definitive answers, but to get some of the pieces of the puzzle so that we can, we can have that debate and we can talk about that and we can, we can do that. And yet I thought it was going to be clay court season where Djokovic and Alcaraz were finally going to share the same draw in 2023 for the first time. And look, hopefully it still will be, but it, will either be Rome or Roland Garros. It won't be Madrid. So it's very simple. And I'm going to use an analogy to try to make this clear. The analogy is this. If this tennis season thus far were a math exam, a mathematics test, we're 40 questions in. We're 40 questions in. Medvedev answered all 40 questions. Djokovic answered 20 questions and Alcaraz answered a different 20 questions, the other 20 questions. So Alcaraz answered 20, Djokovic answered 20, but they didn't answer any of the same questions. Medvedev answered all 40. How are we going to figure out who the best at math is here? <laughs> How? How are we going to do that? All I'm saying is the data is insufficient right now to have this conversation, which is a bummer because it would be really fun. Let's give some flowers to Dusan Lajevic, who beat Novak, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't one of those, I don't know, Lorenzo Bassetti, Monte Carlo situations where you have the big win, super emotional, super great, lose the next match. Uh, Lajevic took it all the way, and he basically took out his entire Davis Cup team, and then in the final, beat Andre Rublev. Great story for Dusan. I kind of assumed that the Monte Carlo run was going to be the highlight of his career. 2019 makes the final there. Masters 1000 final. 
And then a couple of weeks later, actually, he wins his maiden ATP title in Umag. But even after that in 2019, there was not a lot of continued momentum in his career. Since the Monte Carlo final, Lajevic, until uh, coming into last week. So from the Monte Carlo final coming into the last week, Lajevic's record ATP main draws was 62-91. and 91. Now, he did have some splashy wins. Last year, he beat Kasparud in Madrid. He beat Daniil Medvedev in Rotterdam. But ultimately, four straight losing seasons for Lajevic, ATP main draw. And now this year, he's 14-8. and eight. It's not a turnaround I saw coming. I thought at times over the course of the last couple of years that he's looked uh, slow to me, and I thought maybe he was kind of on the way out. And uh, it's great because he's he's played awesome tennis again this year. He kind of reminds me at his best of Stan Wawrinka. You know, he's a guy who is going to try to hit a lot of heavy balls off of both wings, using the one-hander, lots of time on the clay, which is an advantage for him. And as heavy as he hits the ball and as offensive as he is, and he even moves the ball around the court pretty nicely as well, none of it feels all that high risk. There's a patience to the way he goes about his offense. And he can get in a really great rhythm and become a a very, very solid ball striker. And that's what we saw this week. So congratulations to Dusan. It's a great story. Let's get to the Barcelona final. Alcaraz defeats Tsitsipas. A-plus performance by Carlitos in this one. Uh, it was not a match that felt close at all. Scoreline, 6-3, 6-4. I've seen matches that are 6-3, 6-4 and actually feel pretty close. This was not that because it never felt like Tsitsipas had any chance to break Alcaraz's serve. And the only portion of the match where Tsitsipas had some actual momentum and was stringing together some success was really the first 10-15 minutes of the match. And from there on, there was never really a glimmer. It never felt like Steph really went on a run of points or anything of the sort. So this did not feel competitive. This did not feel close. And Alcaraz was in complete control couple of places where I could start, but uh, let's start with the Carlitos drop shot. This was one of the best performances of the Alcaraz drop shot that I've seen in a while. And Stefano's talked after the match about how it's it's really tough to defend it because you don't know, obviously, if the big forehand is coming. And there were, by the way, 10 Alcaraz drop shot winners in this match, which is 43% of his total non-ace winners. So hit three aces, take the aces away. I don't think they should count as winners. That's just me. Take the aces away, and the 10 drop shot winners are 43% of his total non-ace winners. So you'd have to assume the rest of them, you know, a couple of volley winners, maybe approach shots, uh, but then some of them were were drives. There's, he might have hit more drop shot winners than power ground stroke winners. There's a chance that that's true. Depends. We don't know how many volley winners are in that subset. Which essentially means that as far as winners are concerned, 
there's a 50-50 chance, if not a little bit tilted to the drop shot, when Alcaraz has a short ball on the forehand to play from the midcourt, you don't know if he's going to hit the drive or hit the drop shot. You just you just don't know. And both are excellent. The drop shot, beautiful execution. The big forehand, A-plus tier one power. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You have to hit quality balls. That's how to defend it. There's no other way to defend it. The offense is too good for Alcaraz if he's going to be in a position where he has all day to load up the forehand and either rip one or drop shot one from a good position. And he has incredible court awareness. He feels your court position. He knows if you're retreating to try to defend the power. He knows if you're up on the baseline to try to account for the drop shot. He's going to pick the right shot and he's going to toast you. And you're simply not going to win a lot of points from that position. You're not going to be able to scramble back into points. So how to defend the Alcaraz drop shot? Hit quality balls. That's it. He's not drop shotting quality balls. He's not pulling a lot of Anjabur. Sometimes with Anjabur, it's like you hit a totally decent shot, and then she hit a drop shot winner. And it's kind of spellbinding. It's like, what what the heck was that? She had a drop shot off of that ball. Alcaraz isn't doing that. He's not. He's hitting drop shots off of weak incoming balls. So how to defend Alcaraz drop shots is to hit quality balls. And I, I lead with that because, because that was ultimately the issue for Tsitsipas. And then I'll spend the rest of this time talking about why. This, this match was the opposite of the Yannick Sinner matches, where it felt like Alcaraz had all day. He just had too much time. And look at the forehand stats. Alcaraz forehand, 19 winners to three unforced errors. And we talk about that shot, how dependent it is on how much time he has. And again, part of this was the playing surface. This is clay. He's going to have more time. And part of it was Tsitsipas. Part of it was the backhand return. Part of it was the backhand in rally. But either way, he was not getting enough on it. He was not. So let's start with in rally. First of all, uh, slicing. There are a couple of problems with the Tsitsipas back in and rally. First of all, he was he was slicing sometimes. Never slice. Don't slice. Why is he slicing? On clay against Alcaraz, that's not gonna that's not gonna get you anywhere. Uh, Carlitos is gonna run around. He's gonna hit forehands, and he's gonna hit huge. His footwork is too good, and his racket speed is too fast. He's gonna be able to get the ball up and down, and create offense off of your slice. Unless your slice is great. And Tsitsipas, sometimes he hits a good slice. Sometimes he hits a decent slice. Sometimes he hits a bad slice. Uh, but it's not consistently great. And if you're going to slice against Alcaraz on clay, clay the hardest and worst surface to slice on usually, uh, it better be great. And it's just not for, for Alcaraz. And by the way, it's the same thing against Rafa. 
If you're playing Rafa, don't slice. Rafa on clay, don't slice. That's a horrible idea. Horrendous. You can't. He'll kill you. He's going to generate enough topspin and enough speed on the ball uh, off of slice, which the benefits of slice, you take away height and you take away pace, and it becomes hard to attack. But when you generate enough racket speed and you create forehands off of it, which Alcaraz does, you're able to attack despite the lack of incoming pace, despite the lack of incoming height. Um, and the second thing that Alcaraz is able to do when Tsitsipas slices it is something that I took some screenshots of. Uh, check this out. Tsitsipas hits a big forehand down the line here. And Alcaraz has to defend with his open stance backhand. Tsitsipas is kind of off the court, unfortunately, and, and he doesn't, he's a little bit off balance when he hits this forehand, so he's a little bit slow uh, to recover. But Alcaraz is going to hit this backhand with uh, a lot of pace, gets a lot on it, which is crucial. Tsitsipas, in this situation, I don't blame him for slicing. But the reason I took this screenshot uh, is because it was so remarkable from Alcaraz. Uh, Carlitos reads the Tsitsipas slice and does what he does better than anyone else that I've ever seen, which is make a late jump by recognizing the slice and attacking the floater and coming to net and finishing. And Tsitsipas is not able to make uh, this squash forehand. Um but that's insane, you know, that Alcaraz can go from Alcaraz can go from here, all right, from here to hitting a forehand volley in one shot. That's the offensive instinct. It's the athleticism and the speed. And it's very, very unique. You almost never see that. So uh, Alcaraz is going to attack your backhand slice with big forehands and with Delayed net rushing. Um, the other thing I want to talk about in rally is uh, when it comes to what uh, Taylor Fritz did to Tsitsipas in Monte Carlo, what Djokovic did to Tsitsipas in the Australian Open final, the pattern that we've kind of highlighted in terms of breaking down Tsitsipas's backhand is to go often into the deuce court to open up the space on the ad side so that when Tsitsipas is hitting backhands, he is under some pressure and he's hopefully on the run. Whereas if you're going to the ad side repeatedly, you're giving Tsitsipas the chance to hit backhands from a comfortable stationary position where he hits the backhand better and you are allowing him to be better positioned to hit runaround forehands, to get forehands, which is what he ultimately wants, especially on clay. Well, I do think that Alcaraz unlocks uh, almost a, a shortcut. Almost a, He almost has an easier time breaking down the, the Tsitsipas backhand than I think even the others do. Because I see him simplifying the approach a lot more than Fritz did and, and Djokovic did. And it looks to me like Alcaraz can generate um, enough pace and sometimes enough height 
going straight into Tsitsipas' backhand, even when Stefanos is in good position, and still get quite a bit of reward from it. Hit the ball so heavy, so big, that Tsitsipas is, is, is too rushed, really, to hit uh, a quality drive. You know, he, he's mishitting, he's rushed on the drive, or he's, he's rushed enough where he goes to the slice, and we've talked about why that's bad. And then in this case, sometimes even just the height, just getting it above the shoulders is generating the weaker ball. Seems really easy for Alcaraz to create these low-quality Pass backhands. Backhand return for Stefanos, ineffective to the highest degree. I would venture to say that Tsitsipas returning on his backhand at the level that he did in this match, he will not break Carlos Alcaraz. Maybe once every four sets, he'd break Carlos Alcaraz returning at this level on his backhand. Gave him no chance. Alcaraz won 79% of total service points. Well, well above. Let, let me tell you what it was on second serve. Uh, Alcaraz won... Uh, 73% of his second serve points, albeit low sample size, 8 of 11. Um, Alcaraz served beautifully in this match. I will say that, you know, 77% first serves in. Part of that was because I think that he has a huge target. I mean, I, I think he was going big target into the backhand or trying to hit some higher quality serves into the forehand was, I think, the, the strategy. But he wins 81% of his first serves, 73% of his second serves. And the problem, really, uh, I'll say 34% unreturned serves. Some of them were returnable backhands for Tsitsipas. But a lot of them were great serves, especially on the deuce side to the forehand, that ended up being surprise tactic, ended up having the benefit of surprise because he was going into the backhand what looked like to me about 70% of the time. So when he went out wide, he was getting great purchase out of it. I think that's where most of his aces, only three aces, but where most of his aces came from. So 34% unreturned serves um, versus... Alcaraz holding Titipas to 23% on return serves. But the biggest problem was Alcaraz getting uh, way too many easy plus ones with tons of time. Almost every time. Titipas uh, was standing close for the most part. And then his backhand return was rushed and he wasn't making clean contact on the ball. Why was, was he standing close? To protect against the drop shot? Maybe. To protect against the serve and volley? Maybe. You know how I feel about the drop shot. I don't think standing close is a good defense for it. I think the only defense is hit a quality ball. And honestly, I think he has a better chance to do that when he's standing deep. To Alcaraz's credit, when Tsitsipas was moving back, he was serve and volleying. Serve and volleying to the backhand. And that was also difficult for Tsitsipas. I thought even from deep in the court, Tsitsipas was hitting some backhand returns that were landing too central, much too attackable, even with a lot of time, especially on the ad side when he's off the court. On the deuce side, I think there's no excuse for Tsitsipas standing up because on the deuce side, 
if Alcaraz serves T, Stefanos can just run around and hit a forehand. On the ad side, that's much tougher because of the angle that Alcaraz creates. And in order for Tsitsipas to hit a forehand, he would have to be so, 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 so far off the court. It's pretty much infeasible. So the ad side, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know where Tsitsipas should stand. I don't know what he should do. But on the do side, to stand up on the baseline and to get rushed on your backhand return when you can control it, especially on the second serve return, continues to make no sense to me. Just no sense. But ultimately, we can, you know, noodle around on what the best tactic is for Stefanos. At the end of the day, he has a problem. He's not hitting high quality enough backhand returns. That said, I, I do think he should just move back. Let Alcaraz turn into a serve and volley player if he's going to do that. Uh, but the depth needs to be better. It needs to be better. It's it's just the backhand returns just right right in the middle of the court, you know, every time. And uh, Alcaraz is just feasting on it. I loved Alcaraz's return position. Alcaraz with a deep return position in this match. I mentioned before, but I'll say it again. He held Tsitsipas to 23% on return serves, which is a great number. That includes first and second serves. And, uh, you know, the quality of return was often good enough to neutralize in Alcaraz's case. But when it wasn't, he also got some plus one forehand mistakes because of the pressure that Tsitsipas was feeling on the forehand. There were some instances of Tsitsipas overplaying on the forehand. Was that because Stefanos was afraid of neutralization? Maybe. Maybe he is so... And I've I've observed this in Tsitsipas Alcaraz matches in the past where when Tsitsipas has an opportunity to attack with his forehand, he feels so anxious, he feels so desperate that he needs to make create a winning play because he's not confident in his ability to win neutral rallies. Often because whenever the ball is whenever the rally is getting to his backhand, he can't hang. So is he afraid of neutralization and therefore overhitting these forehands? Maybe. Or maybe he's afraid of getting countered off of his runaround forehands. Maybe, you know, he's running around the forehand and he's afraid of Alcaraz's open stance backhand. In this case, it would be down the line. Or if Tsitsipas goes inside in, it would be an Alcaraz forehand counter cross court. Is he afraid to get himself, you know, because he's out of position when he hits the runaround, is he afraid of Alcaraz counterattacking? Maybe. But regardless, there were a lot of forehands in this match where, you know, Tsitsipas was hitting at Mach 15 and missing by a ton. And I've watched, I've been watching Tsitsipas for, you know, five, six years now. I know what his forehand looks like when he's attacking with it. I know how hard he usually hits it how close to the line he usually hits it, how much topspin he usually hits it with. And when he's trying to redline in every single category, I know what that looks like. And this was that. This was him trying to redline his forehand when usually he feels no need to. Usually he's making 
you know, attacking forehands every time because it's his best shot and it's great. And even when he's relaxed, hitting it with some margin, uh, using his easy power, his easy weight of shot, usually that's plenty for him. So, um, those are my tactical keys. If time is the most valuable thing to Carlitos, then this is going to be his best time of year. And so far, if we look at, okay, like, what is the match Alcaraz lost and why and what did it look like? You know, the Nori match was a, a physical breakdown. But the Sinner match, he just looked rushed all the time. That's it. He just looked rushed all the time. So, so far... That's the pattern here for Carlitos, is when he has time, he's not going to lose. And if that's the case, this is going to be his best time of year. He is close, you know, the Nori match aside, he is close to being undefeated this year on slow surfaces. Because he looked unbelievable at Indian Wells. He looked unbelievable this week in Barcelona. Final was his best performance. Uh, and he looked pretty great when he was coming back from that long-term injury. Uh, in the Golden Swing as well. Let's move on to Runa versus Botic van de Zanschkulp, a, a rematch. So by the way, Alcaraz defends his Barcelona title. Runa did the same thing. It is pretty remarkable that they both did it this week, uh, that they both defended it. Um, but it was looking like he was not going to. Let's pick it up here. Van de Zanschkulp up 40-15, 5-2. Serving. He's serving up 40-15-5-2. He loses this point, and I'm going to take you through the match points in a second. He loses this point and looks to his box like he's in trouble. And from that point on, he was basically emotional every point thereafter. Like, every point he lost, he looked like he was in some distress about it. And that's not who Botic is as a player on court. It's not how he's wired. And, man, he was just so stressed. He was so, so stressed trying to win his first career ATP title. And there was a lot going on. You know, not only was he trying to win that first ATP title, he also eventually had the dread of having blown chances to be in the locker room, or in this case be in the trophy ceremony already. And that can weigh on you. And then the third thing is that there was a sudden change in how his opponent was playing. A sudden change in his opponent's physical state. And that can be pretty jarring and that could be a lot to deal with mentally, emotionally as well. So you kind of had the triple whammy against Botic down the stretch of this third set. And the result was rough. The result was rough. He, he really struggled obviously, to play his best tennis. So let's go through these match points, and then I'll talk about what I was seeing in general. Uh, first match point, he approaches the net. He has a half volley. Pretty easy half volley in the sense that the ball was at least moving quite slowly. No half volleys are really easy, especially on clay. It's a tough shot, uh, but the ball was moving fairly slowly, and he just punched it long. Second match point, he had a plus one forehand that he should have attacked. He didn't attack it. Uh, then they got to a neutral rally. They were backhand to backhand on the cross court. And Botic missed a neutral slice. 
Badness. Badness. Those were the two match points that came at 5-2. He didn't get another match point until uh, 6-5. So he served for it at 5-2. He served for it at 5-4. Didn't get any game points at 5-4. Then he served for it again at 6-5. Third match point. It was a first ball backhand where it looked like for a split second, he thought it was going to be a forehand. And then he had to change his footwork and was moving backwards. Ended up being an open stance backhand where his weight was moving back. And the footwork was completely awkward. But obviously, anytime you hit an open stance backhand from behind the baseline with your weight moving backwards, you better put some air under that shot. And he didn't. It hit the net. Like, that's a shot that should go pretty high. Anytime you have your back, you know, your weight is moving backwards and you're behind the baseline, got to put some air under that ball. He didn't. So it was also looked like kind of a slight deceleration, but sometimes with uh, Van de Zanschkolp, it's kind of hard to tell when he's decelerating and when he's not because uh, I'm pretty sure he strings his racket really loose because he never really swings that fast, but a lot of the time the ball comes off really, really fast. Fourth match point. Completely massaged another attackable plus one forehand. And then he did a, a little bit more with his next forehand. The first forehand, he hit it so soft that Runa actually had to scramble forward. And it almost, it was kind of effective because the ball got low on Runa because Von de Zanskulp just didn't really rip it. And Runa thought he was going to rip it. He did a little bit more with this next forehand, but still too safe. Runa ended up hitting this beautiful combination, forehand cross-court, forehand down the line approach. Botic made a great defensive dig, and because of that great defensive dig, Botic had to look at the pass, but he hit another open stance backhand right at Runa. It looked like he was going cross-court, but it, the, the passing shot just went right at Holger. Holger puts away the volley. Those were the four match points. Ultimately, the common theme was this. The stress made Botic passive, for the most part. Von Sanchkulp, his forehand was coming off really, really great all week long in this final. Easy power, lots of time to run around. He was just dictating with the forehand. It's a huge, huge, huge forehand when he really leans into it. So the stress took that part of Botic's game away. And he just wasn't really ripping the forehand as much as he needs to. And then with less control of the points, they were getting into a lot of backhand and backhand. And Botic was just struggling to protect his backhand. You know, the backhand D from Von de Zanschkulp, I don't love it. I don't love it. I think he struggles with it. When, when, that, when he's on the run on his backhand side, or when he's under a lot of pressure on his backhand side, I don't think he deals with it that well. Uh, the good news is, if, if he just murders his forehand, well, he doesn't need to worry about backhand defense. The problem was, he stopped hitting the forehand. Now he has to defend a lot with the backhand, less control of the points, and it wasn't good. Big problem with Von Zanschkulp on the backhand is he, he doesn't go down the line. He just, he goes so predictably cross-court. So predictably cross-court. And that was just, 
giving Runa a chance to really settle into these baseline rallies and do whatever he wanted. Uh, if he wanted to run around and hit uh, heavy inside-out forehands to the Vonda Zanchkolt backhand over and over and over, over again, you know, Botic couldn't get out of that pattern because he wasn't going down the line. Or if he wanted to step in and hit a backhand drop shot, that play was available for Runa. You know, if he wanted to, you know, hit, uh, go back in a backhand until he found one where he could rip uh, a backhand with great angle and then draw the slice from Vanna Zanskulp and come into net from there. Like, there were all of these things that were working, but all of it was was a product of Vanna Zanskulp just being really predictable with his backhand cross court. So, for Runa. Uh, this reminded me a lot of the Monte Carlo final, honestly. It's another match where he seems to be, you know, donating a lot to his opponent. And yet, and yet, he has a chance to win. Now, this was the reverse. Really, he should have probably won in Monte Carlo, where he had a point for 5-1 in the third set. He should have lost this final, where... He was down 5-2. Actually, no, he was down 5-1 in the third set, right? Mm, I could have that wrong. Regardless, he had to break serve to stay in it three times, and he saved four match points. But the common theme here is that Runa in these finals was really, really inconsistent in the match. You know, from start to finish, he was not consistent. And both times... He's good enough. His best level is good enough where whenever he clicks in a place, he's winning, he's dominating, and he's given himself a chance to win these matches. And let me elaborate on this. Runa basically tanked the second set after going down 2-1. And he was upset because, like, he got a racket sent off to get regripped, And it took a while to come back. And I'm sorry, but that's BS. Not for a 19-year-old. You know, for a 19-year-old, it's very understandable. Like, this is this is the kind of stuff that happens when you're 19. You know, where a racket doesn't come back in time and it totally throws you off your game. But in reality, like, that shouldn't happen. Like, that is immaturity coming into play as a weakness for Runa at his tender age. That's what it is. And then in the third set, and, and let me paint the picture. I don't like to just say he basically tanked the second set and not explain what was happening. I don't like to do that. Let me explain what was happening. He started to play as fast as possible. He started to hit every ground stroke 100 miles per hour. And he wasn't finding the court. All right? Third set. Bad start for him, once again. Good start for Botic. And then this shoulder issue comes into play. Comes out of nowhere, really. And suddenly... Uh, Runa wasn't serving or hitting his forehand hard. And then he was, you know, point shortening, forcing net rushes that weren't really there. So he goes down an early break in the second set and throws the set away. Starts having the shoulder issue in the third set and can't play the way he wants to at all from, like, basically... I don't know when it exactly set in. I think I think maybe at 
I want to say at like 3-2, Vonda Zanchkop up a break. And then the 4-2 service game by Runa, uh, he wasn't really serving big or, or hitting forehands. Might have been even earlier in the set than 3-2. Might have been like 3-1 or something like that. So, you know, that 5-2 lead that Vonda Zanchkop came out to, it, it looked like Runa was dead in the water because he wasn't really playing the right way uh, or the way that he wants to play. And then it started to get better and better and better and better. By the end, I thought that Runa was, uh, I didn't have a, a speed gun on it, but it looked like Runa was, you know, hitting 130 mile per hour serves again. So got better. It was jarring for Botic, certainly, but it's not normal that a player can, again, donate so much to their opponent at this level of tennis and still have a chance to win these matches. You need a lot of talent. You need a lot of talent to be able to do that. And Runa has it in spades. Okay, that's all I got. Uh, Madrid preview tomorrow. French Open power rankings as well. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.